From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Washington played chicken with a federal shutdown, swerving at the last minute to pass a stopgap measure. Our D.C. correspondent on what happened and what's next. Then half a million people live in Adams County and their former sheriff finds himself on the wrong side of the law. He and two of his former top deputies are charged with saying they did required training they didn't. Falsifying these records is a felony. It's highly unusual to see charges like this against a former leader of a huge agency. And we remember Chef Matt Selby, who helped put Denver's food scene on the map. He learned to cook thanks to Julia Child. And my mom, and and just her saying, you know what, you're sick of spaghetti and meatballs? Cook. You know, you seem to enjoy it, then go for it. Every member has that moment when they decide it's time to start supporting Colorado Public Radio. Make this your moment. Call or text GIVE to 800-496-1530 and make your gift today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Talk about a nail-biter. Congress took a spending impasse right up to the finish line. A stopgap measure will keep the lights on until mid-November. CPR's Washington, D.C. correspondent Caitlin Kim was at the U.S. Capitol as the drama played out over the weekend. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Ryan. Before Saturday's deal, if you'd had to put odds on Congress managing to avoid a shutdown, what would they have been? I would have said 9901 that we were headed to a government shutdown. And Ryan, Saturday was a roller coaster of a day here at the Capitol, full of twists and turns, including a fire alarm going off in one of the Capitol office buildings, delay tactics to see which chamber, the House or the Senate, could pass something first. But what really made it surprising was House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's about face. Yeah, what happened? Well, as you know, for weeks, he'd been trying to placate the far right in his caucus and find a Republican-only solution to keep the government open. But on Friday, when McCarthy brought a conservative continuing resolution, which is a temporary funding bill called the CR to the floor, one that slashed spending and included border security, 21 hardline Republicans, including Colorado representatives Lauren Boebert and Ken Buck, voted with all Democrats to kill the bill. And so Saturday morning, you saw McCarthy pivot, say they were going to be the adults in the room and keep the government open. And he put forward what's called a clean CR, one that funds government at current levels and also includes disaster aid money until November 17th. And in the end, it was a bill that Democrats could vote for. It passed the House 335 to 91, and then it passed the Senate 88 to 9 and was signed by President Biden less than an hour before the deadline. Less than an hour. So they avoided a shutdown by the skin of their teeth. Uh, How did Colorado's members vote on the short-term funding measure? Well, all Colorado House Democrats, Representatives Diana DeGette, Jonah Goose, Jason Crow, Brittany Pedersen, and Yadira Carabello, voted to keep government open, as did Republican Representative Doug Lamborn. He represents Colorado Springs. Hmm. But Colorado's other two Republicans, Boebert and Buck, voted against it. When it went to the Senate, Democratic Senator John Hickenlooper also backed the bill, and so did Michael Bennett. But there's nothing in Congress can go smoothly. Bennett actually held up the bill for a few hours because the CR didn't include additional Ukraine funding. Bennett only let it go forward after he got assurances from leaders in the Senate, both Democratic and Republican, that um, to commit to providing more aid to Ukraine. Oh. 
Did you get to talk to any of them around the vote? I mean, no one really got all they wanted with this. So what did they say about supporting this continuing resolution, the stopgap CR? That's right, Ryan. And in, in some ways, you see the compromises that were made in the CR. It didn't have the border security provisions Republicans wanted. It also didn't have the Ukraine aid that Democrats and, frankly, many Senate Republicans wanted. But it keeps the lights open and gives them more time to hash out the differences and find a way to fund government for the rest of the fiscal year. That said, a lot of House Democrats, like Congressman Jason Crow, viewed the clean CR as a win. Because it's uh, basically what the, what the Democrats have been calling for all along. Uh, the Republicans finally folded, McCarthy finally folded to fund the government and give us more time to, to keep negotiating. And what about the no vote members, Buck and Boebert? Why didn't they support it? Well, a couple of different reasons. Now, both have said they didn't want a government shutdown, but they also didn't like the process. They kept arguing that Congress's job is to pass 12 appropriations bills by September 30th, Everyone knows this deadline, and it did not happen. Congresswoman Lauren Boebert says they need to stop doing CRs, and she thinks they should have stayed and worked quickly to bring the rest of the bills to the House floor. That does not take 45 days, and uh, I think that we could have done it in seven days. I think we could have done it in two weeks, Uh, and unfortunately, we were never given uh, that timeline as an option. Now, the other reason is they don't like the spending levels. That said, this is an example of the sort of Gordian knot McCarthy faced. You know, the bills that the House have passed are far below the spending levels agreed to in the spring, which are the numbers that the Senate is using. So even if the House had passed all 12, there still needs to be negotiations between the two chambers. It's going to take time. So you think we'll be right back here in 40 something days waiting for yet another shutdown or can they really get it done this time? You know, Ryan, that's going to be the big question and, frankly, the big concern. I caught Democratic Congresswoman Brittany Pedersen after the vote, and while she was glad to have averted a shutdown, she wasn't exactly jumping for joy. I'm worried that in 45 days we're going to be in the same position, so we need to start working now to solve this. Now, House Republican leaders have laid out a timeline for October to deal with some more of the appropriations bills, We'll see what happens on the floor, but there might be some other House drama that upends that floor schedule, as McCarthy is going to have to fend off a challenge for his gavel. Oh, meanwhile, the pressure of the holidays arriving as well. Something of a pressure cooker, I guess. Lynn, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. Caitlin Kim is CPR's Washington, D.C. correspondent. You can read her reporting about the ongoing federal budget debate at CPR.org. Still to come, a former sheriff in a big county finds himself on the wrong side of the law. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. For decades, public radio has been a reliable source for fact-based news and independent music programming, but also for tote bags. If you don't have a public radio tote bag yet, or you just want another one, make a gift of $15 a month and our new tote bag can be yours. It's durable and spacious, features Colorado-themed graphic art, and shows off your support for the service you love. Check it out and donate at CPR.org. Now to Adams County, where the former sheriff is charged with four felonies, including forgery and conspiracy. Rick Reigenborn turned himself in last week and was released with a promise to eventually appear in court. This is the latest twist in a years-long drama at one of the state's largest law enforcement agencies. Half a million people live in Adams County. CPR investigative reporter Ben Marcus 
is following this case. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. Help us understand these felony charges. So Reigenborn and two of his top deputies are accused of falsifying training records back in 2021. They were witnessed signing rosters for classes they did not attend. That's according to state investigators. This was for things like firearms training, driving training. Uh, A deputy told investigators that it had been going on for about four years. In another instance, Reigenborn's undersheriff, Tommy McClellan, his number two at the agency, had his training completed by another person, the head of training, Mickey Bethel. Oh, just stand in. Okay. Bethel logged into McClellan's online account and did a portion of the training for McClellan. Why are these training hours so important? And gosh, it has to have something to do with the fact that, as you said, some of this was firearms training. That's right. To be a certified officer in the state of Colorado, you need 24 hours of in-service training and at least 12 hours of perishable skills. And this is annually. What's perishable? Perishable skills are things like shooting and driving that you kind of lose over time, that kind of degrade. Ah. Uh, Also, as things change in law enforcement, there's new best practices. So that's why this training is required for everyone in law enforcement. I mean, there's also just the honesty piece here. You and CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry investigated the sheriff's office last year. Y'all were the first to report that command staff was under investigation from the state over these training records. What did, at the time, Sheriff Reigenborn tell you about that? He acknowledged that two of his deputies, McClellan and Bethel, were under investigation. But when we asked if his records were implicated, this was his response. No. No. There was only one person's records that got falsified, is my understanding. And it wasn't me. I get my hours in. Not only did he say he gets his hours in, but he said it's just so easy. It doesn't make sense that anybody would falsify records. Uh, And he also said it's just not that many hours to do in a year. And Reigenborg told us that he felt betrayed by these two top deputies that were involved in this. And now he's implicated. Uh, Reigenborn lost re-election shortly after your investigation published last year. And you found that there was more to the story than these allegations of falsified training records. Yeah, Reigenborn had spent his whole career in the Adams County Sheriff's Office uh, since the early 90s. But his career trajectory was kind of stuck in the mud. He was a patrol sergeant. And so he wasn't moving up through leadership, so he ran for sheriff. It's an elected position. Mm -hmm. He lost in 2014, quit the department, went and worked for another department for a while, came back and won in 2018. So he became sheriff in 2018, beating the person who had beat him in 2014. On one of his first days in office, though, he cleans house. He lets go of all these command staff that he thought were loyal to the previous sheriff. But if you're elected as the new sheriff, isn't that your prerogative? Yeah, but then he replaced them with officers who had washed out of other police departments, officers who had arrests on their records, who had worked at really small departments, guys he thought that he could trust, some of the guys that are implicated in this arrest affidavit. And the guys he fired, now they're suing the county in federal court for unfair termination. Mm. That case is ongoing. Reigenborn then lost re-election to one of these people he had fired in the Democratic primary, Gene Claps, who is now the sheriff. 
a saga for sure in Adams County. We're talking about it with CPR investigative reporter Ben Marcus. So uh, Reigenborn isn't sheriff in Adams County anymore, but now faces these felony charges, as do his former top deputies. This is an unusual situation, I gather, Ben. And it's not unusual for police or deputies to face charges, but it is for a sheriff, the head of a large law enforcement agency. The only other time I could find was back in 2011 when the former Arapahoe County Sheriff was arrested on drug charges. Where does this go from here? So all three of them will get their days in court. The former sheriff's deputies who were charged along with Reigenborn, they've already resigned their certification to be law enforcement officers. Reigenborn is listed in the state system as currently unemployed. He has not resigned his law enforcement certification yet. If he's convicted, he likely will never be able to work as a cop again in Colorado. But so far as we know, none of these men are in any particular force at the moment. No. Okay. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. CPR's Ben Marcus, who's on our investigations team. We talked about forgery and conspiracy charges against the former Adams County Sheriff. Still to come, Denver architecture that disappeared. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. You expect context from CPR News, but sometimes the news won't wait. Sign up for the Lookout Daily Email from CPR News, a rundown of important fact-based reporting in your inbox every day. And when major news breaks, you'll also get Lookout alerts. Sign up at CPR.org slash Lookout. Is it possible to miss a place you've never been? I think the answer is yes, because there's a spectacular building that got knocked down long before I moved to Colorado. And I think about it all the time. Never saw it for myself, never went inside, but I miss it. And I'm not alone, according to author Mark A. Barnhouse. His latest book is Vanished Denver Landmarks. I met him last year where this bygone building used to be. Hi, Mark. Hi, Ryan. Uh, Where are we and what used to be here? We're standing uh, near the corner of 16th and Curtis Streets in downtown Denver. This was the Tabor Grand Opera House. And Grand is right. Grand is right. Uh, Horace Tabor, who'd made a fortune from mining in Leadville, decided he wanted to play a bigger role in the capital city of Denver. So he came to Denver in 1879. He built the city's finest office building down on the corner of Larimer. And then two years later, he came up here to Curtis Street and gifted the city with its first major, wonderful theater building. What stands here now, and where we are standing, is the Federal Reserve Branch Bank. Correct. uh, Which is a brutalist building that, you know, is very different from the Tabor Grand Opera House. Is it understandable to you that I miss a building I never knew, Mark? When I look at the Tabor Grand, I just think, my goodness, if I could have been inside. I agree. I've been that way forever myself with old photographs of uh, old buildings. And the Tabor was heavily photographed. There's even one I have uh, seen that is taken in 1947. And it was dingy, it was dirty, but it was still beautiful. It had a 1,500-seat auditorium inside. The interior was as impressive as the exterior. Gas chandeliers? Gas chandeliers, beautiful carpets, cherry wood paneling plush upholstery. I mean, and it was that the sort of high Victorian 
grandeur, murals, uh, a beautiful scenic mural painted above the proscenium arch, and of course the famous stage curtain that was also painted uh, and somewhat prophetic in Tabor's case, since it was it talked about how fleet the works of man are, and then in the Panic of 1893, he lost all his money. Could you describe the architecture a bit? You said Victorian, I think. Well, yeah, Queen Anne is kind of the term, more of a commercial Queen Anne. Uh, the architect was Willoughby Edbrook. He was from Chicago, and he had sent his brother Frank Edbrook out to Denver, originally to supervise the office building's construction, and then he continued supervising here, and then Frank stayed in Denver and became our city's most prominent late 19th century architect. You called the Tabor Grand Opera House a gift to the city. It's not that he gave it to the he, city. No, it was a commercial enterprise to be sure. Yeah. And you know, the shows had to make money. The building wasn't entirely an opera house. There was office space on all the floors uh, surrounding the auditorium space, and of course retail on the street level. Torn down in 1964, but not because of urban renewal, which was the reason so many of Denver's great buildings were raised. Well, I would say yes and no to that, because in the 60s and 50s, really starting then, there was a whole push, not only in Denver, but in, in most large cities, to do urban renewal. And here in Denver, before the Denver Urban Renewal Authority got really going downtown, some private industries around here wanted to clean up the area. And so the Central Bank and Trust Company, which was not far from here at 15th and Arapahoe, formed a realty company and they started buying up nearby blocks and tearing things down. You, you described at this point the Tabor Opera House as being dingy. Yeah, it, it was dingy, but it was still beautiful. Uh, it just needed cleaning up and probably updating with you know new plumbing and whatnot but it could have been saved. But it wasn't. It was not. Uh, originally, the spot was slated to be an apartment building, uh, similar to Brooks Towers, which was another one of the Central Bank's projects. And which used to be the tallest building in Denver. I think it was, yes. And they had announced a, an apartment project for this site, but also at the same time, the Federal Reserve Bank was in very cramped quarters over a block away at 17th and Arapahoe. And they were talking about possibly moving the Federal Reserve Branch Bank to the suburbs, which had all the downtown banks kind of in a tizzy, hmm. because they, the, the main function in those days, everybody wrote checks for everything. And so the Federal Reserve Bank, all these checks would be loaded onto armored trucks and brought to the bank for processing. Huh. It was a clearinghouse. So this was actually built mostly to process you know, checks. This Federal Reserve Bank that we're standing next yeah. to in the brutalist style, which, by the way, comes from the French for concrete, even though it has a brutal quality to it. Yes. Uh, that same year, 1964, something else happened in terms of historic preservation. Well, just a few blocks away, a young woman named Dana Crawford. She had come downtown one hot summer day and her car stalled, back in the days when people had vapor lock, her car stalled on the 1400 block of Larimer Street and she fell in love and she decided to develop it into Larimer Square. And Dana Crawford, now the namesake of the Crawford Hotel, largely responsible for the re-envisioning of Union Station and indeed the saving of Larimer Square, Denver's oldest block. And much of Lodo. But uh, I guess she missed the Tabor Grand Opera House by a little bit. Just a bit. Well, speaking of demolition, I understand your grandfather, Mark, won the contract to tear down a different building, the Old City Hall. The Old City Hall. It was the pride of Denver in uh, 1881 when it opened. But it was rendered obsolete when the city built a city and county building. 
up on Civic Center. And it became the police headquarters for some years. Uh, then the police built their own. The fire department used it as their headquarters. But it was considered an eyesore, and the city decided to tear it down. I have to say, I have always assumed that the city-county building mm-hmm. that exists today, it's imposing and old-looking enough that I thought it was always the city seat, but it was not. It was built in 1932, or finished in 1932. Huh. Yeah. Do you miss the old city hall in the way that I miss the Tabor Grand Opera House? Well, I mean, I do. It would, it would, I think it would be a nice thing to have on the corner of Larimer Square, which is where it was. Yeah. Right across. My family told me when I was a small child, about six years old, we were visiting Larimer Square with my grandmother, and we parked in that parking lot across from Larimer Square, and my mother pointed out the bell, the old brass bell that's sitting there on that cement pedestal. Oh, I've never noticed it. It's right there across, you know, right there on the corner. Next time you're down there, check it out. But this bell was City Hall's bell. And the family legend, which I cannot verify, was that it was my grandfather's idea to save the bell and put it there. So different from being saved by the bell, I yes, guess. I guess Saving so. the bell itself. Yeah, and he, only, he didn't like tearing it down. He actually he felt badly about it. Huh. He, he liked to build things, not tear them down, but he needed you know, to f- feed his family. And uh, he was the low bidder when they put out uh, requests for bids. You divide your book about vanished landmarks into residential ones, commercial, retail, hospitality, and institutional. Uh, Why don't you tell us about the Windsor Hotel, not far from here at 18th and Larimer. People wanted to save it, but they just couldn't. It had a huge sentimental value for a lot of Denverites of the 50s and 60s because there were so many wonderful legends about it. And it, like the Tabor Opera House, it was associated with Horace Tabor. Ah. It was built with English capital, and when it was under construction, Horace Tabor and his partner, William Bush, decided that they wanted to operate it. And so Tabor took a master lease on the property and was responsible for turning it into Denver's finest hotel of the the era. Keep in mind, this is a full decade before the Brown Palace, more than a decade. Oh, goodness, before the Brown Palace. Before the Brown Palace. And there was a desire to save it. I guess uh, people had grown quite fond of it, but... It perhaps had lost its luster? Uh, Larimer by then was Skid Row. There, it was lined with taverns and uh, pawn shops and, and pool halls and that kind of thing. Let's wrap up with your favorite vanished landmark. This is a residential one called Brinton Terrace. Brinton Terrace. When I was writing this book, I, I wanted to include major well-known landmarks like the Windsor and the Opera House and so yeah. on. But I wanted to include some things that maybe people didn't know about. Brinton Terrace was uh, one of Denver's first luxury apartment buildings, built in 1882 at the corner of 18th and Lincoln Streets. And originally, it was kind of a high society apartment house. It was for people who, uh, who wanted to be in society, they wanted to be near the city, but they didn't want to have the upkeep of a big yard and a big house. So That's going to speak to a lot of families today. Even now, yeah, yeah. I mean, this was going on, you know, a century and a half ago. But over time, what made Brinton so very interesting is that... In 1906, the owner at that point decided she wanted to create, and it was a woman, wanted to create a a place that artists of all sorts could live under one roof and collaborate. Hmm. And it it got to be uh, very bohemian. There were architects, visual artists, sculptors, poets, singers, musicians, you name it, any kind of art. We might think of it as a co-op today to some extent. Yeah, I think that's that's a good description. And was the idea that they were 
subsidized a bit? No, these, these, this is long before the National Endowment for the Arts or anything like that. Uh-huh. They collaborated, though. There, there's an old library building in West Denver that used to be the Dickinson Library. And the architect uh, was Maurice Bisco, who lived at, here at the Brinton Terrace. And then the murals were by Alan True the muralist who, who lived in Britain Terrace. Ah, and that's the muralist whose work also appears in the state capitol. And the Brown Palace and other places, and yes. And the Colorado National Bank Building. Mm-hmm. So he was there at Brinton. Yes, he was. It must have been quite the atmosphere, Mark. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, in the book, I, I describe a scene where there were so many, in the summertime with the windows open, with all the people practicing their music, it would have been quite a cacophony. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I guess it's time to vanish ourselves. Okay. Mark A. Barnhouse is the author of Vanish Denver Landmarks. We spoke in the summer of 2022. When we come back, we'll remember an unforgettable chef. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Say the name Guggenheim, and you might think of art, museums, philanthropy, The Guggenheim fortune was one of the world's largest in the 20th century, and it all began in Leadville in the 1880s with Meyer Guggenheim. The poor Swiss immigrant ran a small import business in Philadelphia for over 30 years. Then he bought two silver mines in Leadville, which changed his luck. Both mines made the Guggenheim family a lot of money. Their mining profits grew by adding a smelter in Pueblo, then expanded beyond Colorado and built an international industrial empire with M. Guggenheim's sons. Of the eight sons, Solomon established the flagship Guggenheim Museum in New York City. Simon was Colorado's U.S. Senator for one term. Benjamin, father of Peggy Guggenheim, was on the Titanic. He did not survive. But another millionaire with Leadville roots did. Molly Brown. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. A chef who helped put Denver's food scene on the map has died. Matt Selby was 49. We met in 2011 for a series called Cooks in the Kitchen. The kitchen in question was at Vesta Dipping Grill in Denver's Lodo neighborhood. It's closed now, but its claim to fame? Dozens of dipping sauces, which I had Selby list. Black pepper aioli. Dried berry chutney, roasted corn sauce, green chili gastrique, rosemary ginger, miso. Altogether, there are 36 dipping sauces on the menu. We're talking with chefs who are divulging some of their secrets in new cookbooks. His is called Beyond the Sauce. Matt, it's really nice to be in your kitchen. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Okay, there's crazy about food, and then there's Matt Selby crazy about food. Can we just get the tattoos out of the way? Uh, yeah, you know, most of my <laughs> most of my tattoos are food related. You know, you've seen the uh, the foie gras knuckles. Yeah, so you've got F O I E on one hand, G R A S on the other. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, sacred fennel. Fennel is an ingredient you love. It's one of my favorite vegetables. Okay, so that tattoo is up your forearm. It's on the forearm. On your you right know, side. Right side bicep is the sacred peach. Uh, salt, pepper, lemon. The you know the holy trinity of cooking. Uh, chopstick instructions on the left arm. So like over your bicep and tricep are how to... How to use chopsticks, yeah. <laughs> and then right above that is my uh, favorite cheese of all time, uh, Explorator, a uh, French triple cream. This is the that's label just of the... the label right off of the, the package. So that, that's only some of them. I can only take off so much of my chef. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about who your influences were as a kid. Absolutely. As far as cooking itself, my mom. Uh, my mom was a single parent mom. 
And while mom was an excellent cook, she had a, a very rigid repertoire of, you know, spaghetti and meatball Mondays, meatloaf Tuesday, pork chop Wednesday. You get it. Uh-huh. But also I was a closet uh, Julia Child lover. And, you know, being a young man, you know, that ain't something you want to share with everybody. You know, I like watching Julia Child. Um, <laughs> this is why you were in the closet about it. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I would say between those very early pre-celebrity chef cooking shows and my mom and, and just her saying, you know what? You're sick of spaghetti and meatballs? Cook. You know, you seem to enjoy it, then go for it. So you grew up in mm-hmm. Denver. Yes, sir. And when you would watch, say, Julia Child cook... Is it something that you immediately ran out and then did yourself? Oh, I tried to. Uh, I, I, I remember one time calling my mom. Um, my mom would be home at like 5, 5.30 every day. I, I caught her before she left the office at 4.45. I just got done watching Julia. It's like, I need, I need a leg of lamb. I need some rosemary. I need some lavender. And, and she, she, was, she laughed. She, <laughs> she's like, you know what? There's, there's uh, frozen ground beef in the freezer. And this is where the uh, onion powder is get, get started. Suffice it to say, you did not have access at the time no. to, to fresh lavender. No. Absolutely not. Again, you know, single parent mom on a budget and raising two growing uh, crazy boys. You know what I'm amazed by is how small the kitchen is and how much you have to do back here. It is a small kitchen and, and it's, you have to take advantage of every inch of space. You got, you got seven guys online, elbow to elbow, and it gets pretty, pretty crazy, pretty raucous. I wonder if you could tell us about your worst job as a cook. Well, before I fell in love with with cooking and, and restaurants and hospitality, I was cooking at a, at a corporate restaurant. We won't say any names. You have to buy the book to find that out. I um, could say it right now. It rhymes with shenanigans. Shenanigans? It like rhymes it. with shenanigans. Love it. Love that's, it. What, that's all I'll say. Um, I'd been working there since I was 14. I, I, I spent about like eight years there, you know, busboy, dishwasher, prep cook, became a line cook. It was a paycheck. I hated it. While I was in love with like, like things like Julia and, and, and cooking at home, I didn't make the connection between doing that and being able to make a career out of it because what seemed to be a career option at Shenigan's um, was opening a bag of potato soup, mixing it with milk, and that's the recipe. Does that make sense? I did not make the connection that, that I could enjoy cooking. Thank you so much, Matt, for having us My pleasure. in the Vesta Absolutely. kitchen. Thank you for joining me. Vesta, by the way, the goddess of the hearth. Goddess of the hearth. In Roman mythology. Yes. Denver chef Matt Selby from 2011. He'd written Beyond the Sauce based on his dishes at Vesta Dipping Grill, which has since closed. Selby passed away late last month at age 49. Tributes have been pouring in on social media, crediting him with helping put Denver's food scene on the map. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.